Hey gang, and thanks for downloading Scoring at the Movies episode number 61. This is the sports movie podcast that ganders at motion pictures that contain balls, bats, gloves, sticks, pucks, skates, sneakers, helmets, etc. every other Thursday. And we spoil everything we discuss. I'm the northerner who plays to play and skates to skate. Only I can actually skate. Never could. Ryan Ellis. And here's the big tall bruiser who puts baked potatoes fresh out of the stove into his footwear, even when he's not playing pond hockey in the dead of winter in America's 49th state, Chris D. Gregorio. Thank you, Ryan. And you know I only put those baked potatoes in my shoes to keep them warm until I eat them, right? It's a very practical reason. I hope so. Why waste them? And I also like to think that we don't spoil movies, we ruin them. Those that can be ruined anyway, because I don't know if this one's ruinable. I think it ruined itself. (laughs) Okay, before we talk about Mystery Alaska, I will say that this is the first episode we've posted that's not affiliated with the Top 100 Project. Unless I got lazy last night, all of our material should have been stripped off the Top 100 Project channel by the time you could download this episode. So now it's official. You'll have to visit us here to keep on getting groovy sports content like this podcast. You're saying you stripped the content off of the feed, much like a goaltender stripping off his equipment before being thrown into a snowbank? Talk about bullying. (laughs) It's a little mean. He could hurt his back badly with sliding across ice with no shirt on. Forget about hurting your back. You've... Surely tried to stick your tongue to a cold pole or something in winter, right? I have right? not, but I can imagine it. Depending on how sweaty and nervous he is and how cold the ice is, your back sticking to the ice and then... <laughs> Ugh. Chills, man. Chills. I could imagine That's why it freaked me out, because that looked horrifying going through that and these guys just laughing at him. We've seen a lot of movies over the years covering sports films where it's supposed to be funny, but it wasn't. And those are classics like Longest Yard, Caddyshack, Slapshot. And now Mystery Alaska is not supposed to be as funny as those. Anyway, I'm giving away what I think about it right now. Didn't hate it, didn't love it, but the comedy, meh. There was comedy? Good point. <laughs> no, no, okay, no. let me set it up for us and we'll get into the conversation properly. So, Pond Rules, which was the alternate title, should have been called Pond Hockey because they don't play by Pond Rules. They put up boards, they put up lights, they put up a red line and blue line. It's not Pond Rules. Was released by Buena Vista, which is Disney. Believe that or not, considering Michael McKean alone swears and says the word, and I might as well just say it, fuck, about seven times in maybe 15 seconds. But anyway, Disney technically released this movie 21 years ago, today, on October 1st, 1999. And what a dud. It cost just shy of $30 million to make, so not even a big budget, but a gross less than $10 million. And this is a great cast. And also a big name at that point now, director Jay Roach, who did Austin Powers just a couple years before and was going to do Meet the Parents, Meet the Fockers, the Austin Powers sequels. Now he's the TV movie in the politics realm satire type guy. Big successful director. Big name actors, especially Russell Crowe and Burt Reynolds. He's got Mike Myers in this movie doing a guest spot for him. And yet nobody cared to see this movie in Oscar season. I'm not saying I'm surprised because it wasn't all that great and who cares about hockey films, but only, not even, in fact, 10 million bucks. 
All right, what did you think about Mystery Alaska, which I think was your first ever viewing of this film, right? Not mine. I've seen it now twice. I didn't remember when this movie came out. I don't recall having any knowledge of it in 1999. But like you said, an incredible cast for a movie of this size, like as small a movie as it actually is, to have Russell Crowe headlining it. You talked about a few of the big names already, Burt Reynolds and Mike Myers, that makes a relatively large cameo-ish appearance. Hank Azaria's in it. Mm -hmm. Cole Mamini, who I usually love in most things. Guys like Kevin Durant, who I like in small roles elsewhere, and is actually okay in this. A bunch of actors in this that you look at them and you're like, yeah, I, I know you, I know you, I know you. You're good in a lot of other things. This competes with Ready to Rumble, for the movie I have detested the most of anything wow. we've watched. That bad, huh? And I might even put it below Ready to Rumble, because at least Ready to Rumble was knowingly stupid. It didn't have any pretensions of being anything else. It was a stupid comedy, and it was a bad stupid comedy, but at least that's all it was trying to be. This movie, I don't know what it was trying to be. I'm with you. I don't know what it was trying to be either. At times it felt like the Mighty Ducks grown up. Inspirational. There no, you go. It wasn't, Disney though. inspirational. At times it felt like a Hallmark live action movie. At times it felt like a courtroom drama or a war movie where somebody gets killed and so you got to go get revenge for them. Love story, quirky comedy at times. Yeah, is it a teenage sex comedy? The sad thing is you have all of this stuff crammed within a basic idea. It just felt like somebody showed up to a pitch meeting one day and was like, what if like some small town guys just had a chance to play the New York Rangers? And somebody's like, yeah, that's great. Do you have a script? Like, no. Okay, well, why don't we just throw every trope imaginable at it and see if something <laughs> sticks. And nothing sticks because they give no time to any character development. They give no time to any of these subplots. And I don't know if you can tell this by my initial ranting immediately, I was actually angry somebody had put this to film and wasted my time with it. I was almost <laughs> apathetic throughout the whole thing. And then when Burt Reynolds started slow clapping... Oh, God. Oh God. No, you didn't earn that. This movie earned no emotional pathos from me. <laughs> Nothing. Okay, hold off on the slow clap thing, because we'll get to that later on. But we're way into this podcast, and I've had a few sips of my alcohol, but you haven't had any of your beer that I've seen. So what are you drinking to try to quell your anger about Mystery Alaska? As I always do with these things, Ryan, lately, I go with my fruit-based sour beers. I'm now going to dip into a plum and boysenberry sour beer, because after a movie as male-centric as this one is, and so derisive to womankind, <laughs> I needed something as manly as two fruit-based beverages. There we go. Do you think this is a victim of its era? Are we looking at this too critically because it's 2020? Or is it just this bad a movie? I'll give my score right now. I'd give it a very generous six. And that's mostly because I did like this cast. Russell Crowe was at the height of his powers at this point. I thought he was relatively good in the lead role. We didn't say the two women in the movie, who I think both, of course, look very good. And also, I think, do a solid job. Mary McCormick, who was in Private Parts, the Howard Stern movies before this. The same year as this does True Crime with Eastwood. Lolita Davidovich, one of the great names in the history of actresses. She's Ron Shelton's wife, was in so many of his movies. We covered Cobb earlier this year. She's in that in a fairly small role. They got Phil Esposito to be in it. Little Richard is actually in this film. That was the weirdest cameo, is Little Richard, of all people, to do the national anthem. I don't know if Jay Roach had that kind of clout. Was it Mike Myers with that kind of clout? Was it just the studio? I don't know. But some of the people being in this, it was fun to see so many talented people, person after person. Hank Azaria, I guess they thought was going to be the thing. I like Hank Azaria, as I know you do too. 
you've mentioned Brockmire lots of times, yes. and he's not playing that character, but maybe there's a bit of that in this. You've known Brockmire better than me. Of course, the Simpsons stuff, and he was in some big movies like The Birdcage, which he got a lot of raves about, and then Godzilla. Didn't succeed, but they thought it was going to, so he would have been cast in this movie partly because they thought, that'll be a huge hit like Independence Day was. Let's get him second build to Russell Crowe, who was big in LA Confidential. And then he went off to shoot The Insider a month after they finished shooting this, which is probably why he was a little tubby in this. Not that he's tubby, but it's even commented on. He's a little out of shape, probably because he had to get out of shape for The Insider. I guess I just like seeing these actors doing these roles. And they actually managed to almost get me. But the fucking slow clap, I'm with you. I can't believe they did that because I didn't remember what happened in this movie. I didn't think they beat the Rangers. And I'm going to do the nutshell right now because this fits in perfectly. Mystery Alaska in a nutshell. Players on a mediocre NHL team flat out refuse to interrupt their season to travel to the middle of nowhere to play an amateur team, so the movie is about 60 minutes long. Because why in the world are the New York Rangers agreeing to go to Alaska in what has to be January? Because we see Christmas portrayed in yeah. this film. Why are they going to Alaska just because they're guilted because some guy goes to New York to argue the case and dies? And then the judge says, well, let's make sure this happens. The players can still say, we're not doing it. It's not like you gave us a week off to go to Alaska to play. We still have to play another team probably a couple of days later. The whole concept is flawed. If they did it in the summer, or maybe you can't do it in the summer because even Alaska gets warm enough. But anyway, if they did it not in January, I would maybe buy it a little bit more. I'm going to give you the three things in this movie that kind of worked for me. But before I do that... The biggest flaw of this movie, if you break it down to just that whole little Cinderella, middle of nowhere, pond hockey team versus professional sports team, that in and of itself is a valid concept, and you can make a movie out of that. But they inserted so much stupidity to bloat this movie out that contributed nothing to character development or my caring about any of these people. The worst offender of that was the whole subplot of... New York Rangers players refuse to go play in this game, notably because you're right. They have no obligation to. They're under contract to the NHL to play 82 regular season games. If the NHL agrees to let these players go to the Olympics, for example, that is collectively bargained. That's part of their agreement. Yeah. If this were going to happen, it would be a promotional event that the NHL wanted to hold. But there's no chance on this green earth that the NHL would ever agree to it before consulting the Players Association. And even if they didn't do that, there would be no chance in hell that they would take one of their own teams to federal court to go play a nothing promotional game in Alaska and get that ill will going both in the media and against the Players Association. The judge has no authority to make the team go. (laughs) And even if that's not the case, and they go play... Now I know, as a viewer, that these players don't want to be there. So forget about the fact that it's taking place, like you said, in January, in the middle of an NHL regular season. You've got a group of NHL players that don't want to play. I'm surprised that they put in any effort whatsoever. If I were them, I would just be up there skating in semicircles around the ice the whole time doing nothing. It so blew a crater in the middle of having any chance of enjoying this movie that I couldn't get past it. The Rangers were not a good team at that point. No, they weren't. They had won the Cup about five years before this movie is set, or at least when it was released in 99. They won in 94 with Marc Messier. But now they've got Wayne Gretzky. He was on that year's team. But none of the real Rangers were portrayed as characters in this. Every single name you hear and every single player you see skating is a made-up person. 
and they could have had Gretzky at least portrayed in this movie, but they didn't even do that. I guess there was a rights issue and whatnot. So not even the NHL, if you think about it, in reality wanted to play ball with the movie, let alone the real story of what's happening in the movie. They clearly agreed to allow the movie to license well, you're right, the they logo had to, and they? the That's right. Rangers logo, all of that. It was bizarre to me. The three things that did work for me, one, Russell Crowe, I do agree with you. I kind of dug his performance. He has to give the emotional speech, essentially the halftime speech of this movie, to rouse the troops. And there are a few actors in Hollywood in our generation that can give that kind of speech with the kind of gravitas of a Russell Crowe, like Maximus, Decimus, Meridius, and Gladiator. He was so good at this point, too. LA Confidential, The Insider, and Gladiator, then A Beautiful Mind, in the span of five years or whatever that is, four or five years. That's a career for anybody, and he did that in a short period of time, and he still did other good movies around then. Cinderella Man was 2005. He was excellent at this point. You joked two weeks ago, how many people did he injure with telephones? And it's <laughs> shitty that he was like that with anybody, but he also got away with it and didn't really get punished for it because he was in the middle of being so excellent. Master and Commander, 2003, also is part of this whole big run of movies. So we could stretch it from 97 with LA Confidential all the way to 2005 with Cinderella Man. Wow. He made this movie almost work. Maybe that's why he said on Gladiator, because Bev and I talked about that earlier this year. I can make any line work because I'm the world's greatest actor. To make me like him in this movie, maybe he was, at that point at least, the world's greatest actor. Well, see, that's the thing, though. I kind of appreciated his performance. I don't know if I liked his character, because his character was definitely selfish for most of the movie. But he had great hockey hair. I haven't seen hockey hair like that on a man since Ryan Smith retired from the NHL. His legendary (laughs) mop of hair when he was with Edmonton and the Islanders was just magnificent. And Russell Crowe came close to it. Even if he could clearly not skate worth a lick, the action aspect of his performance didn't work for me at all. But everything off the ice I thought was reasonably well done. I kind of dug most of Burt Reynolds' performance in this. Not the slow clap, but everything else. He is the only person in this town that is an actual, reasonable, functional adult. Everybody else is a caricature of an adult that is just hockey-obsessed. Hockey, 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 hockey. How does the town that loves hockey this much not have an indoor arena or some kind of indoor rink in Alaska? And the movie, by the way, it is set, as we said, in winter in Alaska. It's never really snowing there. We don't see a blizzard. We don't see the game get snowed out by a blizzard just coincidentally. And they did shoot it in Banff, Alberta, here in Canada, and other parts of Alberta, in the winter, January to April of 98. Were they gluttons for punishment? And we see so much daylight as well. There's very little daylight up there. It's even less than we get. It's probably dark about 3 o'clock. It's dark around here at 4 or 5 that time of year. They got lucky they could ever play. They didn't get snowed out all the time. You don't have to actually see what you're describing because you get people in this movie telling you so often how cold it is and how bad the weather is in this point. Hang on, it's the visitors, the newscaster, and the Rangers players, of course. That's why Little Richard sings so long, and including singing the Canadian National Anthem in an American state with an American visitor just to try to freeze them out even longer, which was kind of fun. I guess it's supposed to be funny. But the people that are there, the residents, they're often with their jackets wide open, maybe have something on their head, And they might have gloves on, but not zipped up to the chin like they probably should be in Alaska in January. Up until that point that you described with Burt Reynolds where he does slow clapping stuff and he's the cheerleader on the bench, he's the guy that clearly loves hockey. We get the speech he gives to his son about playing both ends of the rink. you got to play D. You don't glide into the defensive zone and hope for the puck back. you got to pass. You know he's going to pass for a big goal. And who's going to score that big goal? The guy who can't score. The captain. Russell Crowe's character. 
Why am I forgetting his name? I'll look it up in a second here. But you Beebe? know that has to happen. John Beebe, right. You know it has to be the guy who won't pass, passes, and the guy who can't score, scores. Yeah, that was painful. The guy that is lauded for his passing ability is the one that scores and vice versa. I'm like, yeah, okay, cliche, but whatever. But he actually is the voice of reason. And during that absurd trial scene... This is the other thing. They have a town hall meeting, and there's like 30 people there. Okay. They set up stands for everybody to watch the game, and presumably the whole town turns out, and there's maybe 200 people. But they have a judge on call in this town all year round, and they run a courtroom. And the courtroom they run is manned with a jury of townspeople. There's no chance in hell you can have an assault with a deadly weapon trial that's not going to be totally biased, as you see with the defense attorney groaning inside, because... The Pruitt guy is like, oh, you know, they love hockey. You love hockey, right? Well, we all love hockey. This guy hates our town, so innocent. And one of the best players is the guy who is on trial. Connor was never going to get put in jail. You have the one voice of reason that says, you have brought shame on my courtroom today. I'm like, yes. And he's right. You're right. You live in a town of children. So I kind of dug his performance up until that point. The only time this movie made me laugh, and I don't even know if it was intentional, was during one of the weirdly explicit and uncomfortable sex scenes that this movie has in it for some reason. The two teenagers are getting it on in the cab of the truck. No nudity in this, but you still get the close-up flashes of this young woman's cleavage for some reason, even though you never see nipples, so it's not technically nudity. But there's a shot of her unzipping the guy's fly, and he's wearing snow pants, right? So the fly is like a foot and a half long, and it cuts back and forth three times to her still unzipping. I'm like, okay... I don't know if that's an intentional joke about the pants and how long it's taking her to get his clothes off. That made me giggle. A funny director like Jay Roach, that's supposed to be funny. That was pretty good. Also, I was impressed and surprised, not so much laughing, that a condom is unwrapped. It's rare you ever see that in any movie, let alone a Disney-type product. Now, of course, he gets off before he ever actually does anything with her. I guess her just putting it on him is enough. And again, that's supposed to be hilarious. But just seeing that condom at all and then seeing it prepared to be put on him or it is put on him, I was impressed they did that. <laughs> You're like shocked. Well, for a young woman, she is adept with this condom. She's been practicing on some bananas, I guess, because she's supposed to be a virgin at this point. No, I mean the film showing a condom. Most sex movies don't show condoms. Do they in American Pie? No. The same year as I this. I don't think so. That movie's obsessed with sex. The whole movie's about sex. Do you ever see a condom in American Pie, though? I can't argue with that. But what made me uncomfortable with this was that scene of the two youngsters getting it on, which kind of made me weirdly uncomfortable watching it because, again, up until this point, I'm kind of of the opinion that this is a, say, Mighty Ducks, but with adults kind of movie. So probably geared towards a younger audience, in addition to maybe adults, but you want a younger audience. But initially you get Skank Martin banging the mayor's wife. Again, no nudity, but fairly explicit sex scene. And then you get that with the two youngsters. And both times I felt creepy watching it because I wasn't sure if this was intended to be a kid's movie. I flash back to, as an example, us watching um, Slapshot. In Slapshot, there is actual nudity, right? Paul Newman is lying in bed with... Melinda Dillon from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Right. That was a great scene. Forgetting the fact that she's topless, that was a really good and scene. And you know it's had. an adult movie at that point. These are two adults post-coitally lying in bed, talking to each other, and it just felt like they were having a conversation. In this movie, it felt exploitative to me because it was just shoehorned in... Really, nothing comes of it, except in the case of the kids, when they try to use it later for some cheap laughs that, again, I didn't really like. I thought they were stupid, and maybe if I'm 10 years old, I find it funny, but maybe I'm overthinking it because I'm a cranky old man now, but 
it just felt like one of those things where, again, maybe a studio executive said, okay, we need to have the teenage sex comedy audience because it's 1999, so make sure you've got the two 16-year-olds getting it on for the first time. Oh, and make sure you have an uncomfortable conversation with the girl and her mother later because why not? And we also need to appeal to the dads in the crowd, so make sure you've got Skank Martin getting it on with the mayor's wife because we need the dads to really be pumped up for this movie. Guys, just pick your audience and go with it. You can't be all things to all people. Incidentally, this movie was rated R. Was so you talked about it being a kid's movie. The kids aren't getting in unless they're with their parents. And I don't think kids would probably want to go see this because who's in it that they care about? Okay, if it's rated R, then show me breasts. Give me some nudity. I looked it up just to confirm it, but I knew it had to be rated R because of Michael McKeon saying fuck so often in that one scene alone, let alone everyone else. There's a lot of bad language in this movie. John's son, did he not say something like fuck me or fuck? He does, Did he yeah. not say that? Where did you hear that? It was in the locker room. I had an idea a long time ago and never wrote a screenplay for it. I wanted to write a movie when I thought maybe I'd write movies where the very first line would be fuck. I had to find a reason why the person would be so frustrated they'd scream fuck and then never say that word again. <laughs> you can't get rid of it. It's imperative to that first scene. But then it's never said again. I kind of like that. And they do the same thing in this movie, although they do say it a lot more often than just once in Mystery Alaska. So you're right. This seems to be that they're trying to appeal to kids because at one point Skank gets hit with a puck in the groin. And then that reporter is bothered about that because she wants to fuck him. And clearly she does after the game's over. That's set up pretty nicely, I guess. Again, supposed to be funny, not that funny. And why? But if that's supposed to be a gag for the kids, they didn't see this movie because it's R-rated. Why did that reporter want to nail Skank? Are we supposed to like Skank at this point? He spends the entire movie being totally derisive towards every woman around him, just treats them as pieces of meat, gets caught in an affair with the mayor's wife, and then, I guess, is redeemed because he shows up and says, hey, sorry I banged your wife. But there's only two things I like to do here, and that's play hockey and bang women, and your wife is cute, so I guess that's okay. But you're the mayor, and because I did this, I'm going to play hard for you in that game. And he gets hit in the groin with a puck and then looks in the stands at the mayor, so now we like skank. Now we're even. <laughs> so when the reporter says, hey, I got three hours, skank, let's go do this thing, we're supposed to like cheer and applaud for him. He was the most unlikable character I've seen on the screen in a long time. He walks into a locker room unannounced and just says the grossest stuff about this woman he just slept with. Compares her to a walrus or something when she's naked. And then she hits him with a shovel later in the movie because that gets around to him. Hence the punishment by the team of the guy that let slip what was said in the locker room by making him skate naked into a snowbank. And apparently he's a teacher and he teaches young children. And that's not enough of a calling for you? Sleeping with everything that moves in town is the only thing that keeps you not falling into the bottle? And I think I had this reaction to The Last Boy Scout. I was always asking, why? (laughs) But the choices The Last Boy Scout made, they might have been insane and ridiculous, but they were fun. None of the choices this movie makes are ever fun. (laughs) Let me address the Ron Eldar thing, because he's skank. Good character actor. You've seen him in a lot of films. He does have good taste. I'll give him that. Because Lolita Davidovich is lovely in this movie, as is Mary McCormick. So the score factor in this movie, we're talking about right now. Actually, I'd almost recommend this movie to a couple that want to watch something, have some popcorn, snuggle up, and when it's over, let's get it on. Really? Because you've got good-looking people in it, and because it's sex-obsessed, this is probably one of the more scorable movies because of all those reasons that we've ever seen, even though it fails a lot of things of what you're talking about. I'll grant you that. But good-looking people helps. Attempted comedy. Some people are going to find this funny. 
Oh, I didn't tell you, by the way, the numbers. Let me address some of that, by the way. The failure of this movie was, because obviously you hated it. Oh, yeah. You put it down there with Red Dead Rumble. Rotten Tomatoes numbers. The critics. Actually, let me give you the audiences first. They actually are a fresh tomato. 66% no. of audiences. Yep. Critics, uh. 37%. 3.7, only 4.9 out of 10 is an average. So those who did give a positive review must have given a pretty positive review to bump that up to 4.9 when 37% said yes. It was 133rd at the box office that year, so obviously a huge dud. Phantom Menace was number one. Any given Sunday, we covered that way back when we started this, was number 28. The Hurricane we did last year, I believe, was 48th that year. That was a really good film. And it also, as I said, leading into this two weeks ago, Mystery Alaska, I don't know why, was nominated for the top 100 genres in the sports category. And so many movies we've covered that had so many redeeming qualities were not. I don't get why this was nominated. I liked it more than you did, obviously, but I still don't think it should be nominated for one of the great 50 sports movies ever made. A, I think 37%. Forget about the 4.9 out of 10. I think 37% <laughs> of critics is overly generous to give that a positive view. I don't even think the portrayal of the sport was all that great. I will give it this. Hockey, of any sport I can think of, might be the most difficult one to get a group of actors to look yes. reasonable. Skating is hard in and of itself. I can't do it. I can't do and it I'm with Canadian. the game either. And stick handling and passing and working with the puck while skating in an adept fashion, that's hard. And these guys are supposed to be, if nothing else, really fast. And they look so slow. Right, they don't look that fast, but they're supposed to be so incredibly fast. That's the one thing they have. And they recruit two of the kids, Stevie and Connor, to go to the minor league team in Binghamton, which they actually had as a minor league team at the time. The Rangers had that as a minor league team. But compare this to a movie we covered almost a year ago, Miracle. Those players were players, though, who were actors second. Yeah, so much better. And that's portrayed. maybe the best hockey movie, I think, at least of all time. I think it's better than Slapshot. I don't think the sport was portrayed that badly, but I didn't buy that Russell Crowe was on skates. He must have been on skates sometimes, but not much, and certainly not for the harder things to do. And hey, again, we just said it. We can't do it. But if you're going to be an actor and be in a hockey movie, you better be at least relatively competent. And they were, at best, competent, not even relatively. We shouldn't rip on it too hard for the portrayal of it, because like I said, I think it is hard. Thinking to Slapshot, and that's a movie that neither you and I particularly love. We both agreed, I think, that it was overhyped in its fandom now. But Paul Newman clearly put in the work to look reasonable yeah. on skates in that movie, as did much of the cast. And they were not pros, like the Miracle Skaters, who weren't pros, I don't think, either, but they were hockey players, whether they did in university yes. or otherwise. But you mentioned the two female leads of this movie, and I'm not going to try to pronounce their names because I'm not going to remember it. Lolita, Lolita Davidovich. Davidovich and Mary McKay. Mary McCormick. McCormick. They're fine, for sure. Too many, let's throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks, subplots. The mayor's wife subplot, and that's Alita Davidovich, right? Yes. Okay, so she cheats with Skank, and then the mayor finds out. She throws out there, well, you never touch me anymore, or something. Yeah, you're right. Okay, And then that's, that's about it. And then reconcile at the end, and there's not much else to Honey, that. you have a point. And then John's wife, who kind of has a little bit of a flirtatious thing going with Hank Azaria's John's character. not wrong. John's not wrong, right? Donna has a past with Charlie, and she's into Charlie. She's not going to cheat with him. I don't think the movie's suggesting she's no, going to do so that either. in a hotel room or anything like that. In their bedroom when John's doing his job. He is a cop, of course, in the town. But she definitely likes him. And I did actually like that angle. And again, that's Russell Crowe being at his best at this point yep. in his career, where he could pull off the fact that so many people probably are like this too where they've got this wonderful wife who's supportive who loves him she's beautiful they still have a good marriage all that's great but then when anything makes him feel inferior or inadequate which she didn't do and not even charlie did he did it to himself 
And I thought that was a nice touch because he's projecting his own feelings of inadequacy onto her. But she doesn't want to leave him. As she says, I stayed here for you. But then she realizes after Bailey dies, the lawyer, and then they have the nice touching funeral. I also stay because I do love this town. I do realize that I do want to be here not just because of you, but also because I love these people. And that's one of the reasons why this movie is not a failure to me, because they made those kinds of things basically work. Russell Crowe reminds me a lot of George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life. He's loved by all. He loves everybody in the town. He has a pretty good job. He could do this until he retires and be absolutely fine. He doesn't have huge goals that we're really aware of. He's got three boys with this beautiful woman who loves him. But then it's the Sam Wainwright thing, that hee-haw guy in Wonderful Life. That is always under George Bailey's skin in Wonderful Life. And I think that's George, it is in that movie, projecting that onto Mary. And that's what John does here with Donna and Charlie. But it's because he feels restless to some degree. And he also feels defeated. And then he does get bumped off the team, too. And even when they need more players to play the Rangers, it's not like he immediately was going to be a player. He was going to be the coach. But you need more people. I'm still not good enough to play on the team I was just on. That's relatively well-written and maybe not completely consistent, but Crow pulled it off at least. Let's put it that way. He pulled off something that whether the writers and Jay Roach made it work, I think maybe Crow did, and McCormick did too as the wife. You said a lot of things just then, and some of it I do very much agree with. Jimmy Stewart, at times, I kind of thought that uh, he was... He was really channeling some some Jimmy Stewart or some of those scenes. But more so, Mr. Smith goes to Washington type stuff. Because in the town hall meeting where the judge is very reasonably saying, we're going to be a sideshow here and we risk just being horribly embarrassed. Maybe we should consider that. I was expecting people to bust through the doors with letters to Santa Claus or something and saying, here's 10,000 letters from kids that want to see this game happen or something <laughs> like that. Because it had that vibe. But... It's a Wonderful Life is also a good analogy for it. I want to touch on that. But before I do, just to go back to the point about Russell Crowe's wife, I think they came close to maybe having a nice little arc there. It all sort of centers around Russell Crowe's character's perceived jealousies. His wife didn't do anything except reconnect with an old boyfriend slash friend from high school. Be nice. Be polite. Be nice. And if she was happy in a way that she hadn't been recently... You can have an arc there that shows John to be distant as a husband for reasons. But where this movie fails and where something like It's a Wonderful Life I think succeeds much better is in showing us these past relationships, right? Like Sam Wainwright, we see with Jimmy Stewart's character in It's a Wonderful Life, we see them growing up together to a certain degree anyway. We see the relationships they have before he leaves. We know about Jimmy Stewart's past and desire to get out of town, which we don't have here. We have no inclination that John wants to leave he's the guy that's always defending the town and he might be frustrated because he just got kicked off the team but aside from that we got nothing we have no character development here that's what makes me so angry when hank azaria's character comes back everybody hates the guy and he's a little bit smarmy when he shows up because he dared to leave and be successful writing sports articles in Sports Illustrated about his former town yeah. and got them this opportunity and then ends up being drunk on a Zamboni, which was a bit of a dumb scene that Crow redeemed. Nazari did his best, but Crow redeemed by sitting with him and saying, we might lose 28 to nothing and that would destroy this town. That was almost my nutshell. This final score should have been 28 to nothing or 24 to four because they are playing a pro, even a mediocre NHL team that year. They're still pros and yeah. you're not pros and you're playing under the NHL team rules. But Azaria, yeah, it's a strange thing, too. At the end, he's so, yeah, guys, let's go get him. Mystery, mystery, mystery Eskimos. There was a touch, by the way, that surprised me when the reporter proposes they call themselves the Eskimos. And right away, Cole Meany's character, 1999, is saying, that's offensive. They're not called Eskimos up here. They're the Inuit. 
And we've recently learned, well, maybe not recently, but hey, it's one of those things. I just didn't know Eskimos was offensive. It has a nice ring to it. The Edmonton Eskimos football team here in the CFL, they may not be called that too much longer because that is considered offensive. And it has a cool ring to it. But of course, they are called the Inuit. But I do like that touch that even 21 years ago, Eskimos right away, Colmini says, no, that's not cool. That's fair. But like you said, he's hated because he left, but it's implied that he was a real shit heel or something in high school. But we know nothing about the guy. All we know is that he grew up in this town. He left. He became successful in the sports industry, journalism-wise anyway, and then came back and tried to help the town. And then everyone just rips on the guy. And there's a moment that I think is supposed to be played for laughs when a little old lady says, I always thought you were a real asshole. I'm like, give me something about this guy. Are we supposed to hate him and think that he still has the hots for John's wife? Because he does. He still likes her, even if she's not responding to it. But we have no inclination of what their past was, except that she dumped him in grade 12. If they played it, okay, well, John has been distant for a while, and here are the reasons why, and we actually knew that. She might have been exhibiting a little bit of joy because this was an old friend coming back to town who wasn't just constantly derided by everybody that isn't this one woman. But instead, they play it as, well, John got kicked off the team, And then almost immediately this guy shows up and all this begins to happen, right? It's not like he got kicked off the team and months pass. He got kicked off the team. This new kid's going to be put on the team. And, oh, the next day Hank Azaria shows up and, oh, New York Rangers are going to come play here. That's pretty much the time frame. Crow talks with his wife. They sit down and she says, well, you know, ever since you got kicked off the team, you've been so distant. That was like yesterday. (laughs) It's been hours. It's been like 24 hours. I mean, come on, give the guy a little bit of time to be sad about being kicked off the team. I don't understand. And this town has nothing else. Everyone shows up for the game, like you said, the Saturday game. They even call it Big S, Big G, or Capital S, Capital G. Everyone's obsessed. They read the magazines. I guess the argument is, well, so they have. And what else does John have? And obviously he feels like he should have done more with his life. But the one thing I do have is I can be great on Saturdays with these young kids in a lot of cases, Stevie and Connor especially. I think maybe the subtext is supposed to be that's all he has as well. No, and that's not true, though, because he's got three kids he loves. <laughs> exactly. The one kid's part of the game. He still loved his wife. But I think what we're looking at here is this guy, before the movie ever started, felt inadequate. And now here's a guy who comes back who makes him feel even more inadequate. But he's still got to be a man. He's still got to do his job. And yet there's a part of him that wants to go outside and scream at the sky, fuck, until he's hoarse, and then scream again when he's not hoarse anymore because he feels so failed even though he's not failed because just like in it's wonderful life you have to have champions of every town in america canada india england russia australia germany because it's not just the people that fix the world or make the world bad it is the people that fix the world and make the world bad in little towns too and a lot of people in this town everybody's a good person in this town there aren't really any villains even skank's not really a villain he's the worst person probably in the town because he's fucking around with people so much and doesn't respect although maybe he's learned that as the movie plays out no but he hasn't well, okay, yeah, I guess he hasn't, because he wins again with the reporter, right? Yeah, that's true. He doesn't grow or change at all. This is the other thing. Nobody changes. Everyone starts in one place and finishes in that same place. Well, I don't know that's true about John, actually, because he gives that really touching eulogy for Bailey. He says more than once, we're a hockey town, and the game's back on, because I guess the Rangers are coming, what, out of pity? Is that what this is all about? I guess. But I think the arc that John has is similar to the arc in, for example, Tom Cruise and A Few Good Men. I remember Rob Reiner said in the commentary of that, that when the court case is about to happen where they call Nicholson to the stand, the most famous scene in that movie, obviously, that you can't handle the truth. Reiner says in the commentary that in a way it's funny because the main character's arc is done. The minute that Daniel Caffey is going to call the colonel to the stand, 
He doesn't have to be in his father's shadow. He's his own man. He's taken this risk. He could lose his lawyer career by daring to do that. What he does in A Few Good Men in that famous scene is not even the point, according to Rob Reiner. I guess that's kind of true here, too, for John. Him accepting that this is where he should be, where he wants to be, he can make a difference, he has a loving wife who wants to be with him, he's got three great kids, everybody in this town likes him. Playing hockey and doing well is almost a bonus. Now, we haven't even talked about actual hockey in quite a while now in this, the last, whatever it's been, 10, 15 minutes. The one touch that I thought was curious, I didn't buy it, but it was interesting, was that the Rangers are outclassed early on in that first period. We would see a typical movie like this, like in Mighty Ducks, for example, you brought that up earlier, where they're outclassed early, badly, by the better team. But in this movie, our heroes, mystery, win the first period. But then the second period belongs to the Rangers, which is a complete role reversal of most sports movies. That was a decent touch. Credit where it's due. That was a pretty good touch. But they should have been steamrolled from the beginning, especially when they're not even playing pond rules. They're playing NHL rules against even a mediocre. And the Rangers weren't terrible that year. They just weren't great. They missed the playoffs. If they're playing a team that's in the NHL with these guys, no matter how talented and fast they are, it would be a blow-up. But John's arc, getting back to that, was completed the minute he gave that eulogy for Bailey and accepted that his life is what it is, and he wants it to be that after all. And I'm the sheriff of this town, but I even get to play. I think his arc is over before that game even starts. I know what you're saying there, and I want to agree with that. I just don't see it. At what point did we ever get any inkling that John was unhappy being in town? To the point where we get his wife even saying, it's hard being a woman in this town, which is why I didn't buy her turnaround at the end either. Part of her argument to him is, I stayed here because you wanted to stay here, and it's hard being a woman here because you're also a damn hockey obsessed and you won't let us play, so what am I to do except sit at home? Oh, good point. Yeah, no women play. No women play. So she has that whole thing, and then at the end she just decides she loves the town too. But John's unwavering. He's the man in the beginning of the movie, right? He's the captain of the team. He's the sheriff of the town. He briefly is no longer the captain of the team, but everyone loves him. And he's supportive of the new kid. He's kind. He's upset. But by the end of the movie, he's right back where he was. He's still the beloved sheriff. His wife is back in his arms. He's on the team again, I guess. Nothing's changed. I think he's happy now, though. I thought he wasn't happy when the movie started. I think is what we don't see that though. That's the thing. That's what drives me crazy. You mentioned it's a wonderful life. That movie beats you over the head with it. Clearly, you can do it more subtly than that, but at least give us some inclination that okay, maybe John wanted to get out of town. Maybe he thought he had a future as a professional hockey player, but he had to stick around because his dad was the sheriff and died, and there was nobody else. He got an AHL invite and couldn't go because he wanted to look after his kids, so he stayed in town. There's so many ways that you could just very easily give him a little bit of a backstory that might imply that he's resentful about his life, and then I would entirely buy what you're selling. I can answer that, actually. We keep on bringing up Wonderful Life, I'll do it again. George Bailey wants to go see the world and do all these things, but maybe George isn't extraordinary anyway. Maybe George, beyond the Mary thing, beyond taking over for his father when he dies to try to stop Mr. Potter from taking over Bedford Falls wouldn't have achieved these things anyway because he's not extraordinary and john may not be extraordinary either but that doesn't mean that george and john can't want bigger things and not realize that this may sound cruel but and i'll put myself in this boat maybe i'm not extraordinary enough to deserve or earn those things either you make a very good point these are dreams and aspirations but that doesn't mean you're going to achieve them and you can apply that to this movie too. The problem is we're never told that. We're never given any dreams or aspirations that he failed to live up to. Maybe he just doesn't like living in small town Alaska and he wanted to go to a bigger city or something like that and just couldn't do it for 
reasons. He wanted to see Russia from his house. <laughs> he wanted to be constantly at risk of wolf attack in the night. <laughs> Shoot them from a helicopter, please, if you will. Why it bothers me is Russell Crowe is such an able actor. He does such a good job with what he's given in this role, but he's given so little. And it's indicative of all the characters. Every single character in this movie, it feels like, is given one trait. That's it. The small-town prosecutor who only exists to die to be the guy that everyone is going to like win it for the Gipper for. And his trait is being fat. Defense attorney, by the way, not prosecutor. Defense attorney. Defense attorney, my apologies. Yes, you're right. You've got the Scott Grimes character, the son of the judge, whose only characteristic is that his dad, for some reason, disapproves of him. And we're not really sure why, except that you never liked that I didn't want to go to college and only play hockey. I'm like, well, listen, if I was your father and you said all you want to do in life is play hockey in small-town Alaska, I'd be a little bit disappointed in that, too. I don't blame the guy. The judge judge also loves hockey but for so much of the early part of the film he's pushing against it until of course the inevitable that he's going to be their coach even if you knew nothing about this movie going into it you'd have to know that he's going to be the coach and it won't just be russell crowe who's a coach and not a player you know russell crowe is going to play and you know burt reynolds is going to be the coach because burt reynolds as a younger man loved hockey too but now he's mad at it because it didn't work out for him that's what the subtext is with him i guess you don't think it worked but that's what they're going for i don't think that's the subtext with him that's like the explicit text you're resentful because you never got to play in the saturday game i think what the movie's actually saying is this is the one adult in the entire town like i said earlier we've got a town full of hockey obsessed children and he's a little bit sick (laughs) of just constantly trying to herd these people towards some sort of normalcy on a day-to-day basis i think you're right about that that's true i think you're also right we said this before about how they did make a mockery of the legal system the way that connor was never going to be found guilty by that jury but i do think that the judge when he was younger loved hockey oh yeah he because did. he has to because he knows about it he knows so much about it to be a coach he that he is it. burying this yeah he's burying this i did want to be part of the game you're right john but uh, i won't admit it now because i'll admit it an hour and 20 minutes into the movie <laughs> yeah i'll admit it when the script <laughs> wants me to admit it yeah in my laundry list of disappointments i love hank Azaria so much and you mentioned the brockmeyer show if you see his character in this this is the seed of what Brockmeyer becomes, I guess. He's kind of this sports career-focused guy that has nothing going on, and his reality is kind of shattered by a relationship, and he becomes a drunk, and it all falls apart for him. The difference is, Hank Zaria, 21 years later, becomes a little bit of a better actor. And I say this as a guy that's always liked Hank Zaria. You have the room to let the character breathe a little bit. So where we know nothing about Charlie Danner, really except these one or two notes that the movie wants us to know, we know a lot more about Brockmeyer. So when he's behaving like a selfish idiot or a little petulant child, or when everyone hates on him, you know why, and it makes sense, and you feel for the character, you feel for the people around him. In this one, when somebody's ripping on Charlie, I don't know why, I don't care. When Charlie's throwing a sulking fit with Russell Crowe about how everyone hates him, he's leaving town, and meh, 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 I don't care. You've got a good job, you've got a good life by all accounts, and so what, the town you abandon and nominally hate doesn't like you back and aren't appreciative that you brought the New York Rangers to them? Whatever. It's like 200 people. Move on. As far as we know, he has no relatives in town. We never see him get greeted by parents or anything. What what connection does he have with these people? You mentioned the sport, and you're right, we haven't really talked a lot about the hockey in this movie. Concussion City. Oh, yeah. This is 21 years ago. That wasn't so obvious back then. It was ringing his bell. I forget the exact time frame, but it was around this point, I think, when Scott Stevens gave the similar kind of body check that Tree, you mentioned Kevin Durant, who is Kimi and Lost. I'm sure he's done a lot of other things. I always think of him as one of the bad guys on Lost, the one who kills Ben's daughter. 
So when he wipes out Stevie with a huge body check, and Stevie's clearly fucked up from it. Well, we didn't know it then, but that's not having his bell rung. He had a concussion, and he's a kid. And it's not Tree's fault, he's doing his job, but this is one of the things about hockey and other physical sports that we shouldn't be overlooking, and we don't anymore. But we did back then, and it's supposed to be a comedy scene where Stevie is in things, I forget what he even says, but dumb I'm a shit. premature ejaculator. Right. That's supposed to be hilarious. There you go. I didn't mention, by the way, the writers. David E. Kelly, Ally McBeal, The Practice, and other big shows he's written for TV before. Not a lot of movie-type stuff. He's mostly been on TV, but a legend in that business. And this guy named Sean O'Byrne, who only wrote a few movies in total. You would think that these guys would write a better screenplay, Kelly especially, but Jay Roach, I said already, their director. This is not something we knew about back then, concussions and hockey and everything. And it was supposed to be, yeah, stand him up with a huge body check. Yeah. And Tree has to find his aggression because he's so huge. He's not even as big as the Rangers players, or maybe he's as big as a few of them, but not very many of them. Russell Crowe, by the way, I looked it up. I thought maybe Russell Crowe was a pretty towering guy. He's not even six feet tall. He's a little shy of six feet tall. And I'm sure that the Internet's a little bit generous with that, too, that he's even that tall. But Kevin Durant is actually six five or six. Kevin six, Durant's seven. a bulky guy in this movie, too. Right. And when he wipes out Stevie, he's supposed to be one of their key players, Stevie is. So, yeah, hit him in practice because he's got to learn how to take it. But if you wipe him out, he can't play in the big game he did to play in when you want your town to be promoted when they play the Rangers. Forget about the hit and the concussion. They then knock him out two seconds after he wakes up because he tells Scott Grimes that... He's a premature ejaculator because of his sister's perky tits or something like that. And then he just punches them out again, which, again, is played for comedy. But I'm like, yeah, didn't really land for me. One of the funny things I enjoyed about this, when they're watching the hockey footage of the Rangers play, they're playing against the Maple Leafs, right? And it's somebody I can't remember on the Rangers who's fighting against Darren Langdon and Ty Domi. Well, Ty Domi, of course, I remember, but Darren Langdon. They say, well, we have to play against these guys? And all I could think of was movie you couldn't come up with a more imposing figure i get that ty domi got in a lot of fights of course he was a long time maple leaf so i was a big fan of him for a lot of his career but he's like all of five seven or something he's a really small guy he's a tough guy but he's a small guy and not a terribly imposing figure especially when you've got a guy like kevin Durant who's got him by like about 60 pounds and eight inches so I thought that was a weird choice to make, to have them watch that and be intimidated by Ty Domi, of all people. No, but they're intimidated by Langdon, because he's the ranger. Yeah, I know, but you see Domi more than you see Langdon in the clip, so it was just a weird little snippet for me to see there. Yeah, you mentioned the knockout hit tree lays on... What's the player's name? I can't Stevie. Remember. Stevie, yeah, thank you. So he says, head down, and you're right, because Eric Lindros and his brother, Brett Lindros, who had his career ended mm-hmm. far earlier than Eric... Both notorious because they were big kids, and they were much bigger. I think they were both about 6'4 and bulky guys. But growing up, they were so big that they could never get checked effectively, so they stick-handled with their head watching the puck. And then when they got to the NHL, somebody like Scott Stevens would abuse them, and he just annihilated Lindros. I think everyone thought Lindros's career was going to be over at that point. Eric's career, that is. Mm-hmm. Incidentally, if you do want to see small-town hockey done much better, Letterkenny takes place in small town Ontario, and at least in the early seasons, they really portray what it's like to have that small town Ontario hockey team as basically the only sport that matters in the town, and those townies that are really into it, and the banter they have and all that, done much better. But what this movie does is throw out some of the lingo really well. You mentioned the potato that they toss into the skates to warm them up before the game, and later they use those potatoes to demonstrate the left-wing lock, So you're going to have to have one puck carrier against three defensive players. 
Man, that flashed me back to the late 90s. The left-wing lock is not really a thing anymore. We no longer have the two-line pass and the center ice line. New Jersey Devils. Freaking New Jersey Devils. The Devils and the Detroit Red Wings, I think, more or less, were single-handedly responsible for ruining hockey at the NHL level for about a decade, just making it almost unwatchable. Games that ended one nothing with, like, 15 shots on net because it was just left-wing lock, left-wing lock. Let's just kill any offense and wait for a single mistake to pounce on. And they wonder why people don't care about hockey because it's not exciting. Or at least it wasn't exciting for a long time. In this era, particularly, it wasn't. When this movie came out, hockey's popularity, at least in the U.S., might have been at its lowest point since the 60s. Both labor disputes, but also because of crappy quality of the product on the ice. Thankfully, it's changed now. As many failings as I feel like the screenplay had... They put effort into getting some of the lingo right, some of the terminology, the way the game flowed. And I know they had Phil Esposito do a guest spot. They had Barry Melrose do a guest spot with Mike Myers as the pseudo Don Cherry. But the guy that was actually calling the action reminded me so much of Bob Cole calling a game here in Canada on CBC for so many years. I thought he did a good job of the announcing. However, did he at any point say, Loose puck! <laughs> he did not. Bob Cole couldn't see for a long time, so it's just scramble, loose puck, <laughs> score. Because <laughs> Bob Cole had no idea what happened, so he would just say whatever he could to fill the air until he saw the red light go on and say score. <laughs> <laughs> but loose puck of no one had control. That was his thing. Bob Cole could really paint a word picture, Ryan. Intricate detail, <laughs> visualize that stuff for you. It isn't in any way influential about this, but it is portraying something that's become standard now outdoor games in the NHL. They do multiples now. There was a time when it was one a year, and it was a big deal to get it. They had two teams that got it every, I think, New Year's Day, but definitely early January. And now I believe it's multiple teams, which is still kind of special because you don't know what weather you're going to get, and they've played through some bad snow. Yeah. Which, of course, they ran the risk in this movie. The Rangers could have come all the way up there for nothing if there was a big snowstorm in January in Alaska. But we do see those outdoor games now, and they're pretty lucrative to my understanding, especially when they could put a lot of people in Fenway Park, for example, to go watch the Bruins play somebody in January. I don't think they're going to Fenway, but they've gone to... They did. They did they once. Did I'm sure they did. Who's Michigan? Is it Wolverines? The Wolverines? You mean that team? They put it in their football stadium, and I think they had 80,000 people. There you go. Look at that money. And they've got all the TV. Everybody who cares about hockey is watching that. I liked it a lot more if you had one, maybe two a year. It just feels more special if you're doing it once a year, and it's a real spectacled game. And yeah, it's risky, too, and that's part of the appeal of it. Now I think they're up to like four, five, six of them a year. It waters down the appeal. But you're right, this is one of the early instances, and it's an interesting angle that they try to take. What bummed me out a little bit is we're playing pond hockey. We're not playing hockey hockey. There's no boards, there's no lines. Then they put up boards, they put in lines, they have a ref, of course, and then Russell Crowe raises a stink. You know, we agreed to play pond hockey, and you sold out, this is to Cole Meany, I guess for advertising purposes. We've got boards, we've got all this stuff. We're going to get slaughtered out there, because this isn't what we agreed to. And they should have been. And they should have been. And also, this movie should have been called, even though they didn't end up playing it, Pond Hockey. Mystery Alaska means nothing. That should be some kind of, I don't know, mystery movie. By the way, Hank Azaria, the same year as this, was in Mystery Men. Same year, Mystery Alaska, Mystery Men. But they should have called this movie Pond Hockey, or even The Pond Rules, which was the working title. The reason they agree to do this in the town hall meeting early on, essentially, is because they asked Russell Crowe, again, as a respected member of the community, do we have a chance, John? And he lists all the pros and cons that their team might have against the Rangers. We got speed, and we're playing Pond Hockey. It's the black ice. This is our ice. But it doesn't mean anything. 
At no point do we ever see them take advantage of it somehow in a way that stymies the Rangers. They keep mentioning black ice, so I thought, okay, you know, maybe there's going to be a scene where they dump the puck in and the Rangers literally cannot see the puck on the black ice because they're so used to playing the white rinks of the NHL. The locals will take advantage of that, maybe jump on a loose puck, as Bob Cole would say, loose puck, scores! (laughs) They never do it, and it felt like something that they hammered on over and over and then never paid off. It is mentioned that they're playing on a bigger surface. The surface itself, even with the boards and the red line, the blue lines, is bigger at least. And that is something that has burned NHL players in the Olympics many times, the bigger ice surface. One of the reasons why the Canadian and American teams haven't won more medals. Canada, of course, has won multiple gold medals, but they didn't win every time like we thought they would because of, at least in part, the huge ice surface when they play in the Olympics. And it works the opposite way when we see a lot of European players, highly touted European players coming to the NHL, at least early on, making that adjustment to the smaller ice surface because they just get pummeled physically. Now, I'm happy that the mystery team didn't actually magically win. You pointed out the kind of reversal of fortunes early in the game. The underdog takes the lead and then falls behind. And I've talked so often about appreciating when a movie has enough faith in itself to have the protagonist of the movie actually lose, and you can still feel good about the effort they put in and getting to where they got to. Yeah, so two things. The slow clap, as you're infuriating me with again, right in front of me on Zoom. But also, off the top, you get the announcers. They say, the Cinderella story, Mystery Alaska team versus New York Rangers. They were not the Cinderella story. What have they done to make them Cinderella's in my eyes? All they've done was be the subject of a Sports Illustrated article and then whine until the Rangers agreed to come play, yeah. essentially. They sent their lawyer to die yeah. and get a pity vote. <laughs> they sent her to die on their behalf, exactly. <laughs> you know what would have been a fun scene, actually? We get the sense that Tree is not terribly bright. He's a big bruising guy. He's a guy. dumbass. He's a dumbass. So he goes with Pruitt to New York. I would have loved just a little sidebar where Tree's trying to find his way back to Alaska by himself, but can't figure it out. <laughs> Planes, trains, and automobile style. He can't even find his hotel room in New York, let alone guy <laughs> yeah, back to Alaska. Maybe he ends up in Nova Scotia or something on the wrong coast. I don't know where I am. Help. If this movie actually was a comedy, they would have done that. We never would have seen Tree again. Yeah, exactly. The Tree just would have been gone. And then we just see a clip of him in Russia for some reason. If they hadn't wasted all of that screenplay time with the lawsuit and maybe instead have some sort of obstacle that the team itself has to overcome, maybe they have to win a tournament or maybe they have to raise funds to travel. Have to accomplish something as a group before you get to that final event against the Rangers. Other than, I want it. Exactly, because that's the problem that you had with Rudy. I want it, I want it, I want it, I'll give it... Give it to me. And I got that same sense here. This town's like, I want it, I want it, want it. And yeah, we got it, but we're kind of mad at you for getting it to us. And now we're kind of mad because we don't want to lose too badly. I just wish they had to accomplish something. You're right. I probably shouldn't have liked this movie as much as I did because that always bothered me about Rudy the two times I've seen the movie, including earlier this year, that he whines and whines until he gets what he wants. The theme is the same, which is, why don't we get this? You're going to pull this away from us. It's going to kill our town. Why? It's not going to kill your town. It's not going to kill your (laughs) reputation. If a team doesn't want to go there for good reasons, as we've already elucidated in this podcast, it doesn't help your town, but it's not going to kill your town. Maybe that's a great script fix as well, right? Because Cole Meany, who incidentally must be the most incompetent mayor, right? Because this one guy that everybody hates shows up and says, hey, we'll get the New York Rangers here. And Cole Meany's like, I'll spend every dime the town has to build this rink. Good enough for me. I don't need anything in writing from the NHL. I'm good to go. 
But maybe he does that. And then we find out the Rangers can't come to Alaska. The team then has to raise money for the town to pay for the bills that the incompetent mayor... There's all kinds of ways that I feel like you could have gotten me to buy into one of these scrappy guys to succeed rather than just focusing on their broken interpersonal relationships or their philandering or whining. For that reason, when we got to the end of the movie and you've got that climactic scene where Russell Crowe has made it 5-4 and the clock is ticking down and we get the last shot on net by the mystery Alaska guys. He hits a crossbar! We're supposed to be holding our breath like, is he going to score? Is he going to tie it? I don't care. <laughs> Win, lose, whatever. If they lost 9-4, to four, that's a pretty damn good effort against an NHL caliber team. And that's what What's-His-Nuts was saying. The judge. Burr Reynolds? Burr Reynolds. Let's just not embarrass ourselves and that's a win for our town. All right, we already said the sports depicted okay at best because these guys are clearly not doing a lot of this action. But hey, Russell Crowe's on skates a few times. I think that's definitely evident. So that's okay, I guess. Uh, maybe not. Disney doesn't know how to yank those heartstrings. Obviously, it didn't touch Chris. I said 6 out of 10. I'm being generous. You think it's one of the worst movies we've ever covered. What rating would you give it then? Do you remember what I gave to Ready to Rumble by any chance? Probably a 4. <laughs> This may be a three just on the strength of a few of the performances I kind of liked and some of the little tidbits here and there, but it felt either A, lazy, or it just felt like it was Disney executives getting their hands in there over and over and saying, we need some of this, we need some of this, we need some of this, because we got to hit all demographics. And yet, in at least one scene, fucks in a Disney movie. I'm still blown away by that. That is so bizarre. They own Miramax at one point, so that means that they had Pulp Fiction, for example, but they didn't release that as a Disney movie, and I guess they didn't release this one as a Disney movie either, but it is under their banner, so I don't get it. This movie touched you much in the same way that the judge's daughter touched Stevie? I ejaculated pretty fast. No, I didn't, actually. It was a slow burn ejaculation. (laughs) I will look at Lolita Davidovich at this point in her life, late 30s, Every day. She is lovely in this film, and Colmini is lucky to have her. And maybe that's a subtext, too. The mayor knows, I'm not going to do better than this woman if I can just make her be loyal again by saying, you shouldn't have fucked around. Okay, you're right. Then I'll stay married to her. I love Colmini. Like, I'm a big Star Trek The Next Generation fan. I love Chief O'Brien. I like him a lot. Con Air. That's another movie that I don't like, but has a great cast. Oh, you don't like Con Air? I think it's a It's stupid. It's really fucking stupid, but it has an incredible cast. It is stupid, but it is also a Nicolas Cage action movie. I love The Rock. Oh, I, I do like Face Off. Oh, Face Off is glorious. And I don't know if you've ever seen Hell on Wheels, but Cole Meaney in Hell on Wheels is a great character as well. And it just felt like he didn't really have a lot to do here, except for those few scenes where he had to look kind of hurt and or angry, and then, okay, I forgive you, and that was about it. Be the authority figure, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, a failure of a film, but we did see it because I got it from the library, and also because <laughs> it was nominated, and I'm still shocked at this, for the top 50 sports movies on that genre's list and I'm surprised because a lot of good ones were excluded from that. Maybe we'll find another worthy one. This is AFI, right, by the way? American Film Institute. Yeah, whenever I mention the list, I'm talking about AFI. Yeah, exactly. Gotta write them a sternly worded letter about some of their decision-making processes. In two weeks, we're back on the basketball court for the first time since July as we get all mushy about a movie that, again, this man has not seen. We got a run here going of movies he's not seen. Love and Basketball. I'll say nothing more about it because I forget what it's about. I just know that the two main characters play basketball and they love each other. Okay, we're on Twitter. I am at MovieFiend51. He is at Scoring at Movies. You're going to find this podcast only scoring at the movies now. No more Top Nine or Project affiliations. Although I'll mention it, of course, over there because I do both. But anyway, it's only on this feed now. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Deezer, Amazon. Find it wherever you can find podcasts. Take your skatey, dudes. I know that you won't. Or maybe you will. 
I don't know. I've said enough. Goodbye.